I think we all want to be different than we are. We all want to grow. We all want to change. I think this is true of our practical lives, right? We want to start to exercise in 2011 or to eat better or to get a different job or more education or to start reading gooder, I mean better, something like that. It's also true of our spiritual lives. We want to be different than we are. We want to grow. We want to change. Even if you're not a Christian, I think it's true of you. Even if you don't think there's such a thing as universal morality, you have your own set of rules, don't you? Your own commandments that you try to live by? Something you know to do and something you know you often don't do. At least not quite to the the degree that you think you should. So whether it's a, I don't know, a cosmic level pull towards the need for self-improvement or self-esteem or care for the poor or even recycling. These have religious overtones in our day to day. You don't have to believe in God to be spiritual. And you don't have to be a Christian to know that there are things you should do. You don't have to be a Christian to know about guilt. We all have oughts, things we ought to do. We all have guilt, things we feel bad about. I think there are several wrong ways to deal with the problem of ought and guilt. You can find versions of these, whether in the church or outside of it, whether we're talking about Christians or non-Christians. Some just make up their own oughts, usually the ones that they're good at usually the ones that they like. Or maybe you start to justify some select pet sins. Maybe you've been a a Christian for a while, and something has slowly grown into your practice and your lifestyle, and your conscience is, is growing seared. Maybe it's something that you know is wrong, but sometimes you think, even subtly, it's not wrong for you, or it's not wrong right now. Another way we deal with the problem of ought and guilt is to view ourselves according to our best days, to only get the report card out when we got an A. We did good. (laughs) Mark that down. You know, we just don't keep record of the bad stuff. We keep record pretty well of the good stuff. Or similarly, to view ourselves in light of what we think we will be, the things we will start to do someday. The things we want to be someday. Isn't it funny that we sometimes view ourselves in light of what we think we will be? Right? Some of you are former athletes. You've gained 100 pounds since. But you're going to get back to it. And so you still view yourself as an athlete. Or maybe you relativize things. Compare yourself to others. You grade on a scale and think that it's not so bad. Or maybe you deal with ought and guilt by simply making honesty the sum total of virtue. It seems like that's a popular thing today in late teens, 20-somethings, even my generation, 30-somethings. It seems like the highest virtue today is just being honest about how jacked up you are. You never have to get better. You never have to put it away. You never have to improve anything. You just have honesty about how bad it is. And honesty is good. But that can't be the sum total of virtue. Or maybe you've just given up. Maybe you fan the flame of apathy rather than fanning any kind of flame of discipline. That's a way of dealing with those feelings of ought and guilt. You see, we were made with something inside us that wants to be better, wants to be different. And yet something inside us knows that we're not what we should be. We all have this. Romans 2 says that our consciences alternately justify us, And condemn us. Sometimes we feel condemned. Again, whether you're religious or not, whether you're a Christian or not. And sometimes you feel acquitted. Fine. 
You feel justified. You feel like everything's okay. But that stuff that isn't okay, what do we do? Well, it's instinctive, I think, for us to want to cover it up, to hide it, to renegotiate it, or to ignore it. The Bible tells us that this is a universal problem. It makes sense of these dynamics that we can see culturally and socially. The Bible says we were made in God's image, made to reflect his glory, made to do much of what he does. He's made us for this. And yet sin has entered this world, and now life is broken. His creation is broken. It's twisted these God-given instincts. It hasn't totally decimated those instincts. They're still there. That's why we all want to do better. That's why we all want to change. We all want to grow. We all want improvement. And yet, there's massive cover-up. There's a push and a pull that's inherent in this fallen world. It tells us, I think, that God is there, that he has commanded, that we have rebelled, that there is trouble, and that a conscience still remains. Well, today we're going to talk about how Christians are supposed to change, how Christians are supposed to grow, how Christians are supposed to shape their lives according to what the Bible says and according to what Christ has shown. Jesus came to die in our place, to reconcile us to God, to restore us to what's been lost. So he isn't just interested in our forgiveness. He isn't just interested in rescuing Christians from hell and the punishment to come. He's interested in something much bigger. He's interested in restoration. He wants to restore to us what has been lost And then some, even more. And that's why Jesus came. And that's why he died. And that's why he rose on the third day. And that's much of what the Christian life is about. What we'll look at today is a passage in Colossians 3 that looks like a lot of do's and don'ts. And that sounds boring. And that sounds old-fashioned. It sounds unhappy. I know because I had to prepare this message this week. But here's what dawned on me is this isn't just a list of bad things. Further perpetuating the stereotype that the Christians are those who can't. Christians are those who don't. But instead, Paul is doing something way more profound. He's doing something more cosmic. Something more eternal. Something less random. Something more important and more fundamental to humanity in the very reason God has created. The very reason you exist. This list in Colossians 3 is essential to reality and to purpose. And it's part of the pathway to our joy part of the pathway to meaning in life. It's part of the pathway to our communion with God and participating in his glorious redemptive plan. So look at Colossians 3 with me. We'll focus on verses 5 through 11, but I want to back up and read what we saw a couple of weeks ago in verses 1 through 4 as well. Colossians 3 verse 1, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. But put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. 
do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You might remember from weeks and weeks ago, earlier in our study of Colossians, we talked about two different moods in the Greek language. I know we all jotted that down with eagerness, right? Moods in the Greek language. We talked about indicatives, imperatives. You may have actually jotted those words down. Remember I said indicatives describe, they indicate, they tell what is, what reality is. And then there are imperatives which tell what should be. They tell us what to do. They're commandments. Remember we said that books like Colossians so often begin with indicatives, what we have in Christ, who we are in Christ, the blessings that come through Christ before they ever get to the imperatives. Now, do this. Don't do that. Live like this. Shape your life like that. Indicatives and imperatives. Well, we saw Colossians 1 and then into Colossians 2. It's all indicative, basically, right? You get one imperative in Colossians 1 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. You know, the false teaching section. But then Paul just goes on to do more indicatives. What we said when we talked about these two different things before is that even when Paul finally gets to the imperatives, how to live, what to do, what not to do, he bounces between the imperatives, what to do, and the indicatives, who we are. He won't let us go with our to-do list without reminding us who we are and why he's telling us to do these things. So I want to show you again what this means here in Colossians 3. Look at verse 5 and let me let you know what Paul's doing in each of these phrases, sentences, as I read these verses again. Imperative, verse 5. Verse five. Put to death. See, it's a commandment. Put to death what's earthly in you. And then he gives specifics. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, etc. Then verse 6. Indicative. He's describing. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And you once walked in them, and you were living in them. Then, verse 8, imperative. But now you must put them all away. It's a commandment. And then he gives specifics. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, etc. And then... In indicative, in the middle of verse 9, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, you've put on the new self, it's being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. These are indicative, and yet, don't they also imply a what? An imperative, right? He's saying, you already put these off, and yet we know he means you have put them off, and you better keep putting them off, Right? implied imperative and then it ends verse 11 at least what we've read so far this morning there's not greek or jew circumcised or uncircumcised another indicative you see paul bouncing the point is that there's an inextricable relationship between what we have who we are and what we do and paul will not let those go and what it tells us is that growth is essential to christianity We say in our new members class, other times as well, but especially in our membership class, that the very nature of the Christian life is that it's corporate, right? It has a corporate identity to it. You can't find anything in Acts about a a random, island-unto-himself sort of Christian. They're all connected. They're all attached to other Christians. They see themselves in this identity. Part of becoming a Christian, you see in Acts, is also joining them. Not just joining Christ, it's joining them. The church, Paul says in Romans 12, is a body with different members. And so each of us do different things and have a different identity, perhaps. But we're all attached. We're all part of the whole. Well, similarly... 
just like the very nature of the Christian life is that it's corporate, not just individual, the very nature of the Christian life is that it's growing. At least it should be. Oh, not perfectly consistently so, but truly, evidently so. The Christian life is to be one of growth. And you see both the the corporate reality of the Christian life and the growing dynamic of Christian living in Colossians 2. Look at verse 19. Or there, Paul's saying it in negative terms about those who don't do this. We'll put it in positive terms. That we, Christians, are holding fast to the head, that's Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If we're in Christ... We're connected. We're in him, which means we're part of a body. And and that body has different parts, right? There's a joint and there's a ligament and there's marrow, there's bone, there's blood, there are blood vessels, there's skin and muscle and flesh. There's eye and ear and nose and mouth. And yet, when these things are in Christ, there's growth. They feed each other. They help each other. You see that? 1 Peter 2 tells us that like babies long for the, the milk of their mother, we too should long for the milk of God's word. And that's where we grow. You grow by the milk of the word. 2 Peter 3.18 says we should grow in grace and knowledge. You see it everywhere. So many of Jesus' parables are about trees that grow. And Christians who are trees or branches and they They bear fruit. Not all the same. Jesus said at one point, you know, the seed comes forth and it's like different crops. And some's 30-fold growth and some's 60-fold growth and some's 100-fold growth. Not everyone looks exactly the same and not everyone has the same amount of growth, but, but Christians grow. But let me back up and make sure we got the order right here. Let's talk about the relationship between gospel and growth. Or we could put it this way, how do we get to holy living? Right? Verse 5 tells us some things we shouldn't do, some things we should cast aside, things that aren't us anymore. And that came after, after two full chapters of descriptions of what we have. So I want to just walk you through the progression of what we've seen so far without even giving you specific verses. Hopefully, if you've been here, you'll remember sections and you'll remember these themes. Remember that Paul begins this letter by talking about gospel specifics, gospel hope, what Jesus did and what it means for us, right? He talks about it in in thorough, descriptive, and worshipful terms. The gospel is the first step of the progression that Paul's laying out here in Colossians. Then he talks about the benefits, the realities we have in Christ. What's changed now? What has he given us? He's given us his spirit and given us understanding. He's given us the mystery of revelation and all these things, wonderful descriptions. He's given us two, uh, three, a new identity. First, the gospel then benefits, and then identity. Now we're, we're raised people. We're resurrection people. We have a citizenship in heaven. We saw the beginning of Colossians 3 a couple weeks ago. Our life is hidden in Christ. Christ is our life. New identity. You've been reconciled and redeemed and forgiven and adopted. And then he moves to the progression of upward-mindedness. Gospel benefits. Uh, what was my third one? Identity, new identity. And then upward-mindedness. Seek these things. Seek what's above. Seek what you already have. Live out what you already are. And grow in what you've already been given. Upward-mindedness. And then finally he gets to verse 5. All right, now, therefore... Put to death what's old. Put to death what you've been freed from. Do you see? Do you see that changed conduct 
flows out of gospel hope and flows out of spiritual realities in Christ and flows out of a new identity of a heavenly citizenship and flows out of the work of heavenly mindedness in pondering these realities. There are no shortcuts. This is multi-layered. You cannot get to conduct. You cannot get to Paul's list and say, just give me the list. You have to go through the gospel. You have to see what's yours in the gospel. You have to seek the things that are above, not the commandments themselves as ends in and of themselves. And that's how you fight the indulgence of the flesh, where Paul left off at the end of chapter 2. Not like this false teaching going around in Colossae. No, you fight the indulgence of the flesh, like what he said before in chapter 1 and what he's saying now in chapter 3. Okay, now to the outline, if you're taking notes on your sermon notes page. Two main sections here in this passage. Two main commandments, we could say, and each has three hows or explanations underneath. The first section is put to death sinful lusts. Sinful lusts, verse 5. Put to death what is earthly. Put it to death. Romans 8.13 talks like this. It says, mortify the deeds of the flesh and you shall live. John Owen, 17th century Puritan, wrote a a whole book on Romans 8.13 about how to mortify the deeds of the flesh. They were first sermons to Oxford University students. Owen unfolds what it means to put to death the deeds of the flesh for over hundreds of pages. And what he says about the meaning of mortification is helpful, I think. He says, first, what it's not. He says, mortification is not the total and final eradication of sin. So that you decide one day, I'm going to put sin to death in there. It's done. Now it's no more. No, that day will come when Jesus returns or when he takes us home. Until then, there's no final eradication of sin. It's a daily putting to death. He also says mortification is not improvement. It looks like improvement sometimes, but it's not just improvement. He also says it's not mere avoidance. Part of the equation is avoiding certain things and avoiding certain temptations, avoiding certain occasions for when temptation is hot. But it's not avoidance itself. It's not getting to the heart of the issue, right? Your lust problem is not a computer problem. It's a heart problem, right? And it's not occasional conquests, Owen says. It can't be done occasionally. It can't just be done in spurts. It has to be done steadily. So he says, this is what mortification is. It's the habitual, ongoing weakening of sin. It's constant warfare against sin. And it consists of frequent successes. It's singles and doubles, to use a, a baseball, baseball analogy. It's not Babe Ruth's strikeouts and homers and nothing in between. Singles and doubles. Singles and doubles until Jesus returns. And yet, singles and doubles sounds so nice and innocent and American. And Paul says, put it to death. You notice how violent that is? Realize how vi- he says, take a baseball bat to it, to its head. He doesn't say, stay away from these things because they're not out there, are they? You can't stay away from them in the sense that they're out there, they're right here. He doesn't say, ignore them because you can't. You can pretend like they're not there. That's a bad way to renegotiate your ought and your guilt. He doesn't say, when you see it, give it a little nudge. Kick it in the shin. Poke it in the eye. Bonk it on the head. He doesn't say, throw a brick at it. He says, kill it. Murder it. Disembowel it. And to get to that point where you want to kill your sin, you have to hate it. 
You realize that? There is no attacking sin like Paul's talking about unless we first hate it. Unless we want to conquer it. Unless we see it for what it is. As we see it for satanic and evil and part of a cosmic rebellion against the good, righteous God who made us for his glory. Unless we see it for harmful to others, soul-destroying, the very reason that hell exists, you have to kill it. But how would you describe your relationship with sin? Like that? I mean, some sins, I, I have to confess, I, I protect them. I care for them. I, I, I feed them sometimes. Sometimes I, I care for my sin. That sounds so stupid, right? But if we're honest, we have some sins like that. Or other sins that are just like a, a bird that lands in the tree of your backyard. and It's okay. You're okay with it. It's not like a, a mountain lion that climbed your brick wall and is in your backyard. Right? I mean, if the cops show up or the mountain lion warden, whatever he's called, shows up at your house, animal control comes up and says, don't worry, we got him over the wall. It's okay. You go, what? Where is he? We don't know, but don't worry. He's not in your backyard. We checked. That's not enough, is it? I mean, don't you have a tranquilizer gun? Don't you have a shotgun? Next time I'm not calling you guys. I'm getting out my shotgun for the sake of my kids. But some sins we're, we're not that threatened by, not that worried about. It's like a bird that lands in the tree and we go, Oh, okay. Some sins maybe were, pra- were practically good and naturally good at avoiding. It's not the same thing as mortifying. Paul says, kill sins. And do you see that he says specific sins? I mean, he gives a list here. We haven't quite gotten to it yet, but just the fact that Paul gives lists of sins, and he, he gives another list in Ephesians 4, he gives another list in Galatians 5 of specific sins that either used to represent us or that we should now make sure we throw away. We don't do. Just that tells us that Paul is showing us we don't fight sin in general or fight a general idea of sin or a general pattern of sin. We fight specific sins to mark them and go to war against them. John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Do we believe that? In verse 5, Paul gives a list of sinful lusts. That's what we could categorize these specific things in verse 5 as. Lusts, more, more pointedly, they're sexual nature lusts. He says, put to death sexual immorality. This word clearly means sexuality of any impurity. Sexual impurity of all kinds, whether that's adultery or fornication or homosexuality or bestiality or adultery of the mind. Sexual brokenness, sexual perversions. He says, put to death impurity. A word which I think highlights the contamination that comes from sexual brokenness. He says, put to death passion or lust, insatiable urge. Put to to death evil desire, which is just like it reads in the English, desire, which is evil. We all know what desire is, and we know there are good desires and there are bad desires. He says, put to death evil desires. And then he gets very close to home when he says covetousness, right? What is covetousness? It's wanting what God has not given us. Urge for what God has not given us. It's the 10th commandment. In Exodus 20 there, it says, you shall not covet another man's, what? Wife. Or his stuff, but isn't it funny that it says wife? It's as if God would know that a part of a, 
covetous heart in a man would be to long for another wife, a different wife, a better wife, or, or just eye candy. He says, put that kind of covetousness or greed aside. It can be sexual covetousness, but it doesn't have to be. Sexual covetousness is prevalent in our culture today, but so is materialistic covetousness, right? And Paul says in Ephesians 5, covetousness must not even be named among us. Oh, sexual covetousness is taboo still, a little bit, at least in the church. Materialistic covetousness is not taboo. I often will email a friend the link to a new motorcycle, new dirt. But you see this? Did you see this car? 600 horsepower. Ugh, want one of those, right? It's okay to gush with a little tongue-in-cheek covetousness. I'm not sure why, though I do it myself. I'm not sure why, because Paul says here, covetousness is what? Idolatry. You see that? Covetousness, which is idolatry. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. There's something very worshipful about longing for, panting for, a thing, wanting it, whether it's a person whether it's an image, or whether it's more stuff. Now, why put these things to death? Well, he says, because these are earthly, verse 5. It's just earthly stuff. It's not part of the new creation that we're to seek and we're to set our minds on. He says, put these things to death because judgment is coming. He says in verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. What's that mean? This is the kind of stuff that Jesus is coming back to judge with nothing less than the fury of hell. We should let that seep into our minds in the midst of temptation. The wrath of God is coming for this kind of thing that I right now want to pursue. Put these things to death because they represent the old you, he says in verse 7. In these you once walked. This used to dominate your life. This used to occupy your thoughts. But that old self has been crucified. It's been put to death. And you say, well, then why do we still sin? It's been put to death. If, if that's the old self, if that's earthly and we're now heavenly, why do we still do it? Well, he's not done with us. right? There's more work to do. Praise God, we're... We're not yet what we shall be. Sin's debt has been canceled. The power has been broken. And yet the fight is still real. So sin is simply temporarily forgetting or denying, forgetting or denying who we are. It's an identity thing, right? Tim Chester, in a great book called You Can Change, describes sin like this. He says, we're like a freed slave who still jumps at his old master's voice. We're like a man with a healed leg who still limps out of habit. We're like a former prisoner who still wakes at prison hours. It's forgetfulness about who we are or sometimes denying who we are willfully. You see, change, growth, stands on the shoulders of a new identity, like when you got married. Right? When you got married, things changed. And you didn't know how much was going to change, did you? You didn't know how fast it was going to change. You didn't know how many things you did wrong. You didn't know socks on the floor was a bad thing or toilet seats up is wrong or, or like me, that you, you can't eat a meal that your wife made, finish it in about 10 minutes and go, all right, see ya. I did that. Isn't that horrible? I, I didn't know. Finally, my wife said, you can't do that anymore. I've been waiting for 
She didn't say this. Really what she was saying is, I've been waiting for God to strike you dead or bop you on the head or something. And and he hasn't yet. I have to tell you, love covers a multitude of sins. Your multitude is up. You have to sit with me until I'm done. That's partly why we got married, right? To talk and, yeah, okay. It makes sense. I... Duh, of course, I should have known. So marriage is a new identity. In a million things change. And it takes some work for those things to change. But when it comes to identity, new or old, hopefully in a good marriage, you keep choosing new identity. You can't play as many video games, watch as many movies, or go as long as you used to without a shower. You have to change. When kids are born, you become parents. Or when you adopt and bring them home, change. New identity means instant change. Rights and privileges you didn't have. And some rights and privileges that you now sacrifice. The New Testament regularly says, be what you are. And you've been adopted. You're in the family. You used to be under the fatherhood of Satan. And now you're under the fatherhood of the God of light. You're children of the light. So now walk in the light. You're part of a new creation. You can't see it, but it's here. And it's real. And it's coming in its fullness someday. We are his temple. The Holy Spirit resides within our very hearts. He's written his law on our hearts in a way that's unprecedented in history before Christ came. He has done marvelous things for you. He's shown you his love again and again. He purposes to do you good. And he's shown it over and over, both in his word and in the circumstances of your life. And he tells you not to do some things for your joy and for protection, just like you tell your kids. Don't put your finger in the outlet. You can trust him. Think of the parable of Luke 15 and the prodigal son. If we're the prodigal who's come home, we're home. The robe is ours. The food is ours. Why would we run back to the pig? Why would we run back to the slop? Why would we run back to the doubt and the worry? We live with the privilege of sonship and we embrace the responsibilities of now coming home under such a benevolent, gracious father. All right, that's the first section. The second section will go much more quickly. Put away sinful feelings and speech, Paul says. Colossians 3 verse 8, he says, put them all away. Put them all away. Now, he's been very clear so far, but I wonder if it would be helpful for us to talk about what it looks like. At the moment of temptation, when we're, we're wanting to put this to death, we're wanting to put this away, throw it away, get it behind us, how do we fight for that? Well, again, John Owen, in his book on the mortification of sin, gives us nine suggestions We'll put these on the church blog, so don't try to write them down, but maybe these will get you thinking, and maybe it'll invite you to go and read these in the blog or even the whole book. It it says this, when temptation comes, consider the dangerous consequences of that sin. Second, get a clear sense of the guilt, danger, and evil of that sin. Third, Load your conscience with the guilt of that sin. I know there's overlap there. That's, that's quintessential Puritanism, overlap. Fourth, less overlap, less redundant. He says, get a constant longing for deliverance from that sin. Grow it. Fan the flame of it to long for deliverance. Fifth, consider whether that temptation is exacerbated by your temperament. Try to know what sins you give into, what sins 
are easier for your personality or your upbringing, your constitution. Six, consider the advantages of preventing that sin. Seventh, rise mightily against the first step toward that sin. Stop the first step. Whatever the first step of that sin would be, stop the first step of that sin. Don't don't keep walking and wondering, knowing you still have a fork in the road to come. Eighth, meditate on your own self-abasement and vileness in light of the majesty of God. Have you ever wondered whether possibly your own sin and rebellion and waywardness and brokenness in general could help motivate you to flee a specific moment of temptation? From experience, I say it can. And ninth, listen to what God says to your soul. Do not speak peace until God does. By the way, just in passing, some people talk about the higher life. There are books written about the secret of the Christian life. Any title that usually has the secret in it isn't great. There are a lot written by guys you might read and enjoy. Talk about this higher life of letting go and letting God. And yet, don't we see here, Colossians 3.1 says, here's the higher life, right? Seek things that are above. Here's the higher life. Fight for these things. Fight to the death. Go to the mattresses about this. Hate your sin and fight it with vehemence. Fight feelings. Not just the outward stuff. Look at verse 8. Fight sinful feelings, anger, and wrath, and malice. Boy, Paul's sin lists so often have anger, wrath, and malice in them. It must be pretty common to humanity in our fallenness. And the feelings of anger often lead to Speech, which is angry. Sinful speech, he says. Slander. About people and sometimes slander about God. Blasphemous words can be slander. Words that dishonor God. Obscene talk. I think he means here talking lightly about wicked things. Which we should just pause and notice that in our culture today, 21st century America, we love comedy. I love comedy. I love funny movies. I love funny YouTube clips. And some of that humor sort of mocks the irony of sin and brokenness and the struggles that go on in this world. And we can laugh at those rightly, I think. And sometimes it celebrates that brokenness. Sometimes it celebrates waywardness. And sometimes we laugh along with the world when Christians should weep because we know what that means in the grand scheme of things. I think that's what Paul means in part when he says obscene talk. It's treating lightly, talking lightly about wicked things. And don't lie. Don't lie to each other. Why? Why put these things away? He gives us three more things, three more indicatives, three more reasons. He says, you already have put these things away. You already have. Verse 9, you have put off the old self with its practices. In principle, you already have. Now you have to keep putting it off. You need to keep doing it in another sense, but you have put off the old self with its practices. You can say that's not me. That's not what I do. Put them to death because you're being renewed. Verse 10. Look at this wonderful verse here. Your new self is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its maker, which takes us right back to where we started. We're made in the image of God and sin has broken that. Christ has come to forgive, but also to restore. We are being renewed. We're being renewed after the image of its maker, of our maker. We're now part of a new creation. I think that's what verse 11 means. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, 
Christ is all. That's our identity. We don't have a Jewish identity, a Greek identity, an American identity. Christ is our identity. We're part of a new creation. We don't do what we do because we're we're Jewish or because we're barbarians or because we're Scythians. Don't you just want to say it like the guy on, what was that movie? Scythians? It's Thethelians, isn't it? I'm confusing Thethelians and Scythians. All right. Back to the new creation, which that thought was not of. We're in the new creation. Our identity is its outside of who our parents made us to be or the circumstances that make up our life. Oh, oh, that we would ponder more. Let me wrap this up by saying, oh, that we would ponder more what sin is and what it does and talk ourselves into hating it and opposing it more to see it as broken and 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 binding and ugly and evil and wicked and, and to approach this fight with the right, right perspective that change is simply, growth is simply gratitude. It's simply worship. Remember Luke 7 when the woman is washing Jesus' feet with her hair and the Pharisees are mad because she's a prostitute and, and they can't believe that Jesus would let that happen? And Jesus says... She gives much because she's been forgiven much, right? She loves much because she has been loved much. She gets grace. So our change must always be gospel-rooted. It must be grace-induced. It must be spirit-empowered. And it must be gospel-comforted. The gospel is the front end, the back end and the front end of the Christian life in that it propels us to live like Christ who died for us. And then even when we fail to do that, gives us hope that he died for that sin too. But I, I speak only for myself to say that my Christian walk and my desire for holiness needs to get more serious. I've been lazy. I've been negligent. Some of the ways that the Christian life is described in the New Testament, the word pictures, it, it's like a farmer, or it's like a soldier, or it's like an Olympic runner, or it's like marriage. Don't always describe the kind of seriousness striking reality that my Christian life should should have. Do we long for change? Or are we just trying to find out what we have to change? Do we long to grow? Do we hunger for holiness? Do we want Christ formed in us more than anything? I pray that we do. Where have you seen change in the last year, last few years? Some of you would confess, I haven't. There's no pulse. You might need to wonder whether it was ever real, whether the stuff before wasn't just man-made. Or maybe you've just grown tired and weak and calloused. And you need to repent You need to return to the cross afresh. You need to realign yourself with God's redemptive, restorative purposes. And to do it with vigor and joy. And yet with seriousness and thoughtfulness. And the kind of strategy that John Owen was spelling out for us. Trying to treat it like it is a war and like sin really is a problem and like this is the most important thing we do until Jesus returns. Let's pray right now and ask for his help. God, we need your help. We need your help for non-Christians here this morning to hear a message on what Christians 
can't do and to see within it and around it that it is glorious saving truth. We pray that would happen here this morning. We pray the the light of Christ would shine into dark hearts to give faith and repentance. And Lord, they would be saved. We pray for your help, Lord, for us Christians to grow in grace and knowledge. We acknowledge this morning that, Lord, if there is any change, it's to your glory. You've done it. And, Lord, we pray for the confidence to know that you will do it. That none of us should leave here this morning feeling like simply, okay, I can do it. Talk it up. Work it up. Give me a pep talk now. But Lord, let us leave from this place free and happy and confident in your work that you won't stop doing. If Christ died, you'll give us all things. And yet, we pray that part of those all things would be that you this week and this month and this year and until you take us home, we would have, Lord, more energy for holiness and more thoughtfulness for growth and more focus, more attention than we do so many other things that right now are rivaled in our life. So many other things that get a greater priority, greater focus, greater strategy, greater energy and joy. Lord, we pray that you wouldn't take these things out of our lives if they're good, but you pray, we pray that you would be all in all, in all these things. Lord, give us a seriousness and thoughtfulness to follow Christ and be conformed into the image of our Savior. Thank you that one day we'll see him face to face and we shall be like him. Until then, Lord, give us much of your word to look in, to see your glory and be changed. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.